health and fitness with David Hollywood. Fitlands 103. Hello and welcome to Health and Fitness. David Hollywood with you. Let's have a look at what's coming up on this week's show. We're talking about a hobby, a sport, a social outlet, an ever-growing green activity and something you never forget how to do. We're going to get to know Tullamore Cycle and Touring Club very shortly indeed. A little later, we're going on a deep dive into injuries in elite women's soccer. You'll get the academic angle and the Midlands perspective on an issue that stems from both gender inequality and a lack of investment in our recreational facilities across the country. Right now, I'm joined in studio by Chairperson of Tullamore Cycle and Touring Club, Martina Martin, and the club's race director, Donna McCardo. Guys, thanks so much for coming in to us this evening. Thanks very much thanks, for having David. Us, David. Not at all. Okay, so look, uh, Martina, I'm going to start with yourself as chair of any club across the Midlands and I've spoken to plenty of them over the course of the last while. Uh, I know that being involved at that level of any club takes a huge amount of one's free time and one's leisure time. So I want you to tell me this evening, what is it about cycling that gets you to sacrifice so much of that free time? Well, I suppose, David, I joined Tullamore Cycling Club in uh, 2018 and it was a planned for my retirement and from my perspective I have the time to give up to the cycling club uh, at this moment in time fantastic so it's it's been a love since I joined it in 2018 okay and Donna what about yourself I know you're kind of it, it's a lifelong passion as well cycling yeah I, I had a kind of uh, I was very got heavily involved in two sports in my in my uh, career so to speak and spent 31 years coaching golf and involved in the golf trade but I had always cycled and I had always enjoyed following the cycling especially the early days of the Irish guys and I mm. came from a family as I said to you before of bike riders with a, a Ross winner in our family which was fairly special and um, through just a very chance one night I was asked well, could I give a hand I had no involvement with the club at all could I give a hand at a at um, a bike race for marshalling and I had raced very years and years ago as a junior and when I went to the bike race it literally just ignited us back and I go why did I go away from this for all this time and then in 2008 I joined the club in 2010 I started racing and I raced up until Covid and I opened the shop then in 2015 so um yeah, I'm probably knee deep in the, in the whole thing at this <laughs> stage, to say the least. But yeah, I love it. I love following it. I love the racing end of it. But I also love the club end of it and what goes on behind the scenes and on the scenes with Martin and the rest of the guys there. Yeah, great stuff. Well, the enthusiasm for all of it is, is already coming through this evening. Um, Martina, in terms of cycling, I'm, well, I'll ask you two things. First, I'll ask when you do start speaking that you speak into that mic in front of you there. Yep. And the second question then is in terms of the benefits that you've observed uh, in your time with the Tullamore Club, uh, health, social, psychological, talk us through what, what you see as being the benefits of, of the cycling club, specifically the Tullamore uh, Cycle and Touring Club. I suppose if I just think of our club president who at, is almost 83 years of age and is still cycling. Wow. So I think that's testament to just how important cycling is in their lives and in our lives. And I think when we look at the profile of the club, we probably have two to one of male to female ratio. Okay. And of in later, I suppose in the last few years, we certainly have an influx of ladies and they can see the positivity it brings to. You might go out on, on your bike first thing in the morning and you realise, oh, 
it's not really great weather. <laughs> it's not really good crack having to go out in, and in such winds and that. But by the time you get home, there's it's almost like your endorphins are, are just out and you're ready to uh, do take on the day because there's such a feel good factor. You go out, you go for a cycle, you stop for coffee, you write the world, you know, you sort <laughs> out any problems that's going on in your head and you come back in from that cycle and you think, oh my God, that was really worth going out. And, you know, most times it's like that. You might get a wetting uh, in one of the spins, but you just forget about it and you get on with your, your day. It's just fantastic, both mentally and physically, because you're getting fitness out of it. Yeah. And at the moment, we're running spin classes for our members. And we have about 65 members doing spin classes, five classes in the week. That's incredible. And Great numbers. And bringing up their level of fitness to prepare them for going out in March on the bikes. And uh, tell me, is spin class as hard as people oh have told me it's hard? Oh it is. <laughs> because we have three gentlemen, Lee Mulhall, John McNiff and Robbie Westman and they dole it out. We come off the bikes <laughs> and we are in a lather and that is no joke. It, they're, they're just superb class. It's a great way to get fitness. fit though. Yeah. And you know, you know, one or two of the guys every week will put up a spin for the canal and we'll make every effort to get out on the canal. So it's all about building building up a level of fitness, but also having the whole support of one another. Um, we certainly have a fantastic club. We've about 180 members and it's a mix of leisure and competition. And uh, you just you're never alone. Put it that way. You you know, you're always if whether you go out cycling on your own, there's always somebody to go out with. And that's what's great about the club. And everybody's watching everybody's back and they know that when they're cycling alongside you, if you're a little bit quiet and they'll know, well, tease it out further at the coffee stop and see. And that's what's really good about the club. That's great. Uh, Donny, you'd speak to that as well, this idea that, look, because the weather's not great at the moment, but uh, is it a case of when you do get it back home off the bike, you never regret the cycle you decided to actually go on? Never, never. There's a very good uh, friend of ours and member, Sinead Malloy, who uh, has been a member of the club for years and I would have cycled thousands of miles with Sinead. And she rode uh, Ross Naman, a ladies' Ross. She, she rode at a very high level. And Sinead's uh, philosophy always was you will never regret going on a bike ride. You'll only regret not going on a yeah. bike ride. And we've looked out, as every bike rider did on mornings, with the rain blowing sideways and you hum and haw. And you just say, all right, I'm going to go. You do a bit of a Sean Kelly on it. Sean Kelly used to say it was too wet when he came home from the bike ride, not before he went. And... Yeah, there there is a, the bike does so many things as Martina says. There's no one particular thing it's designed for. Obviously, you're going to get fitter and better and stronger and technically better on the bike. But there's so many other things in bike riding, especially in a group. There's good crack as well. When it goes to racing, we have great com- camaraderie between all the guys and we try to have it that people know what they're doing within the racing but on a Sunday spin or a coffee spin or whatever it's generally like the coffee break is great crack and it's a slagging match and every nobody takes it seriously and I think that's what uh, I've said it umpteen times down in my own shop there's, there's a place for everybody in the club if they want to come so if a guy comes and he's super fit and he's coming from a very compact and he wants to race we will give him all he wants of it and if somebody wants it to buy a bike and go and bother along and go for a spin they can do that we have a leisure group who have stopped for an ice cream if they want to or stopped for a coffee if they want to they're somewhere for everybody and nobody tells you where to go. You can find what works for you and move out of that if you want to move up or move down. Good stuff. There's no, there's no um, 
hard, fast and rule as you got. It's there for you to get what the you want. The flexibility is there yeah, for yeah. everybody. We do. We, we, have, we have a number of groups. So we have the A's who are the fast group and the racers, but we have B1s, B2s, we have a C group, we have a leisure group. So there's an absolute mix for anybody to come in. We're going to get into the structure of that and the details around the club's operations and maybe the kind of cycling year that's forthcoming for the club straight after the break so don't go anywhere Health and Fitness with David Hollywood Oh three thirty ten one oh three with your texts and comments to health and fitness this evening. Martin Martina Martin and Donna McCardle have joined us from Tullamore Cycle and Touring Club. They're live in studio on health and fitness this evening. Uh, we've been talking about the social outlet that cycling is. Um, of course, though, there's the competition element as well, and uh, the club has a pretty decent history, Martina, of producing elite cyclists. Um, you might. Give us an idea of uh, of any of them that have come through and maybe some that people might be aware of and to look out for in the very near future. Yes, and I suppose I better acknowledge the fact that we were very fortunate to get f- funding uh, secured from both uh, the County Council and from the Credit Union and the Community Support Fund to purchase two brand new tandems for two visually impaired ladies that cycle with the club. Great. And Josie and Jenny Helian. So Josie has been working towards qualification for the uh, Paris Paralympics and they're taking place in August and September and the qualification period will end in May 24. So once that is over, UCI then will allocate the points. So Josie and her colleagues are all most guaranteed three slots, female slots, Katie George, Dunleavy, Josie Helian and Rochelle Timoney. So we are really, really proud of Josie in the club. She has worked so hard and I have to mention her uh, pilots who have been training with her, uh, Billy Colton, Colin Quinn and Dermot Milner uh, from the A Group and they have been taking her out over all of the years and Jenny as well and we've been really fortunate uh, mm. with, to have them in the club. And that Irish unit is generally brilliant in paracycling. Absolutely. Yeah. They, Josie has a number of uh, world championship medals as we speak. And uh, hopefully plenty more success to come in that respect. Um, We wish her well. The the club itself is obviously very much a settled and important cultural uh, entity in the community. So fundraising is part of the picture as well. Absolutely. So every year we hold the Pat Colgan cycle and uh, this is Pedal Peaks. So there are four races within that or four uh, cycles, I should say. So there's 125k, there's a 95k uh, all over the Sleeve Bloom Mountains. Uh, There is an 85k base of the Blooms and there is a 50k catering for anybody and everybody. This is run on the 25th of August this year. And we support two local charities or have supported them in the past, the Irish Kidney Association and Down Syndrome. And we're very fortunate to have those people helping us out on the day marshalling. But we're also very grateful to Tullamore Harriers and particularly um, Adrian Curley there for uh, loaning his premises for the day. He's a good skin, Adrian. Oh, he's great. And also Tullamore Camera Club, who take the photographs on the day for us and allows us and Brilliant. permits us to uh, use it as a sales process um, for the actual race on the day. Okay. And now, I'm running out of time massively. Donna, as a race director, I'd give me your perspective on the first few big events that are coming up uh, from, from the club's perspective. You've got uh, not so long to do that in, please. Uh, OK, so our our main thing would be to get our racers up and running. They all are training away and keeping an eye on them. Uh, our biggest thing is Midland Interclub League, and uh, we hope to have a member of the club on the Ross this year, we will be heading to Ross Moon. We'll be doing the Gory three-day 
and the first of the stage races in preparation. Uh, that's for the real elite. We have 30, 40 guys and girls who are racing at an amateur level doing Midland League, which is every Thursday night during the summer. Fantastic. It's a half an hour away from Tullamore generally, and we go to all the local clubs and we all host X amount of rounds. Great bit of fun. If people haven't tried it before and they remember the club, and I said week in, week out, give it a go and you can always say you're raced. I see John McNiff has just posted about the mountain bike spin tomorrow morning, every Saturday and Sunday morning up in Kinnity. Okay. That's an opportunity as well for people to get involved. There's no shortage of things that people can get involved in, but you guys tell me now, between yourselves, you can figure out who's going to do it. Uh, If people do want to join the club and they want to get involved, uh, what's the process? Okay, so they can uh, find us on Facebook. All they have to do is search for Tullamore Cycling and Touring Club and they can send us a message there or they can get in contact with us uh, through Shane Scally. Uh, He is our secretary, but definitely Facebook is the easiest way to get. And please, if there's anybody out there that has been uh, playing football or running and is no longer able to do that and is very anxious to get involved still in a team sport, this is certainly the place to come yeah. and try out. It's so, team sport. It's it's, team it's sport. kind on the body in Absolutely. a lot of respects. Absolutely. Yeah. Much kinder than uh, any of those. And I also just want to wish some of our colleagues in a cycling club who are have health challenges at the moment. I wish to, want to wish them the very best of health. Sure. And, and looking forward to seeing this. And we echo that as well. Uh, Martina Martin, Donna McArdle, Tullamore, Tullamore Cycle and Touring Club. Uh, thanks so much for joining us in studio. Next on the show, women are three to four times more likely to suffer from ACL injuries in football. We ask the question why and discuss the solutions next. Health and Fitness with David Hollywoods. I have a vivid memory of watching the 1999 Women's World Cup and it was uh, Brandy Chastain's winning penalty a uh, famous marketing moment for Nike. It was in front of tens of thousands of uh, soccer fans in the United States when they won the World Cup. And it looked like women's football, women's soccer uh, was on the way to being on a par, on a par uh, with the men's game. Uh, that was a generation ago. And uh, as we head into 2024 this uh, January, we're uh, looking at the question of how prevalent women's injuries are at the highest level of the game uh, in this country. Timely enough, there's a study that's come out uh, recently that was done over the course of a couple of years ago. It's a qualitative exploration of the factors that affect implementing injury prevention initiatives uh, at the highest level of the women's game. I'm very glad to say uh, that uh, Dan Horn, who's a former head of football science and research uh, with the FAI and a lecturer in uh, Munster Technological University, uh, Cork, uh, joins us to discuss uh, this very paper and uh, ultimately, Dan, it's a frustrating story, but probably an important one uh, to get into. I think many of us watching the biggest stars of the game dropping out of the World Cup before even a ball was kicked last year uh, know that or feel that injuries are more prevalent for women at the highest level of the game. And uh, I suppose this paper is probably there and can help to serve to colour in the, the gaps as to why that's going on. Yeah, so I suppose to put in some context, this paper that we just published was a follow-on paper from um, a bigger study that we conducted in injuries in women's football in Ireland. So originally we carried out a two-season injury surveillance study in the Women's National League to get some quantitative data on the incidence rate of injuries um, and break down the most common types of injuries and the most common body locations where, where female players playing at the highest level in Ireland incurred injuries and to compare that data then 
to similar studies that were conducted elsewhere. And our findings were similar to what had been found in other studies. Um, specifically, you know, if we think about the injury that keeps players out of action for the longest in women's football, it's this anterior cruciate ligament injury. So it's a ligament that's located deep in um, in our knees and provides stability to the joint. And we know that um, women are maybe three to four times more likely to suffer from that injury in comparison to men. Um, why that is the case, we're not entirely sure. It's something maybe we might discuss in a couple of minutes, but that would have been one of the big findings. Um, we found then that ankle ligament injuries were the most common injury. They didn't keep players out of action for as long as those anterior cruciate ligament injuries, but ankle ligament injuries were very common, as were hamstring muscle injuries. Um, what we're starting to see now with the data that's been published most recently uh, through this UEFA Elite Club injury study, um, where they've tracked injuries in full-time professional women's players who are part of uh, women's Champions League clubs, is that hamstring muscle injuries are the most common in that cohort, similar to what we're finding in men's professional football. So I think that the thought process is that the running demands in women's professional football at the Champions League clubs, clubs like Arsenal, Barcelona, for example, are significantly higher than has been in the past. And we're seeing that in the data that's been published with regard to the running output in the in the World Cups in 2023 in comparison to 2019, in comparison to 2015. The, the sprint distances are increasing all the time. So that we think that uh, female players now are suffering similar sort of hamstring injury rates than men, male players, but the anterior crucial ligament injury rate is still higher in women. Um, and one of the questions then would be, okay, is this a biological issue whereby they have anatomical differences that lead to an increased risk for these types of injuries? Or are there what are referred to as environmental factors um, at play with regard to what women get access to from a strength and conditioning point of view, from a medical care point of view, from a nutrition support point of view, and what they're getting access to from childhood and adolescence onward in comparison to their male equivalents um, are these the factors that we need to consider alongside possible biological issues? Okay. Um, so, so the historical research into this space has looked at um, jumping and landing mechanics in female players and compare them to jumping and landing mechanics in male players, particularly in adolescence. And there has, there is, you know, some evidence that girls land in a slightly different way, and that there can be improvements in their jumping and landing through the use of jumping and landing exercises and strength exercises and balance exercises over time, which can improve that and lead to a reduced risk of these types of injuries. But we don't know whether that's the only reason that female players are at a slightly increased risk or not just slightly, um, quite a substantially increased risk of getting these significant knee ligament injuries. And there's a lot more discussion now about the factors that I just uh, alluded to are they getting input from strength and conditioning coaches at the same age as boys are getting? And are they getting access to the same quality pitches? Are they getting access to training on full-size pitches at, at an early age so that they're, they're prepared for the demands of playing on full-size pitches on match day? Um, and then from a medical care point of view, are they getting access to the most qualified and the most experienced medical practitioners um, when they're playing at a very good level. Mm. And is that the equivalent of what male players are getting access to? And a lot of the sort of research that's been conducted recently with, through 
questionnaires of players playing in women's international teams and interviews such as the one ones that I've undertaken would suggest that female players don't get access to the same resources as male players. So um, it's a complex sort of phenomenon with regard to why they get these injuries. But I think there's multiple factors at play, both biological factors with regard to the anatomy of females um, and also um, environmental factors. Yeah, it's it's good to underline that it's not one specific issue as many people like to hang their hat on, on single solution answers with a lot of complex problems. It's worth mentioning as well that your co-authors on this paper uh, were Eamon Delahunt, Mark Rowe, Martin Hageland, uh, Catherine Blake and Seamus Kelly and it was done in conjunction with UCD and in Chopping University in Sweden. Um, so by the sounds of it, Dan, we know what the ailment is in terms of, you know, through the quantitative analysis, the injuries are more prevalent. And um, in that instance, there is a treatment that we can apply through strength and conditioning and balancing and corrective measures like that. It does sound, however, like the solution is being delivered in a very uneven way. um, And every club in, say, the women's premier division anecdotally from say your interviews and that type of thing it sounds like uh, people had mixed experiences and probably a good deal of frustration in terms of at least delivering on what people know needs to be done. Yeah so I undertook 32 interviews with participants in the Women's National League at the time in 2020 so I interviewed 17 of the players across um, eight of the clubs I interviewed um, seven of the managers across the clubs and eight of the medical staff working in the clubs. Um, And, you know, the sample that I selected um, from a playing point of view was quite broad. So some of the players had played in the league for multiple years. Some of the players had been on scholarships at Irish universities. Some of the players had been on scholarships at uh, universities in other countries. Some had been playing in professional leagues in other countries. Some were young players who had just started in the league. So I tried to get a sort of a broad sample of players' experience so that we could get a rich data set. Um, And then obviously interviewing the head coaches and interviewing the medical staff, this was designed to make sure that we were being as comprehensive as possible to get an idea of, well, what are the contextual factors we need to consider in the women's league um, that may be challenges uh, to them implementing injury prevention strategies. And, you know, so some of the things that came up was the conflict um, you know, with college football, for example, so players who are on scholarships in universities where there's pressure to continue to play um, in inter-varsity competitions during the Women's National League or Women's Premier Division season, as it's now, now called, and they're having to train and play matches on the same day, or they may have matches very close together with lo- very little recovery between them, and there isn't um, a joined-up approach between the college and inter-varsity se- uh, season and the Women's National League season. Um, academic and work pressures, you know, they're all big issues. Players who are working full time or in college full time, trying to balance that with playing in the league um, and having a sort of collaboration between all, all parties. Um, you know, inadequate facilities came up a lot. So players not getting access to training on full size pitches and then feeling like on match day they're playing in a big pitch and they're not ready for it. So they haven't been prepared for the running demands, as I spoke about earlier. Um, not having access to strength and conditioning facilities, no strength and conditioning facilities on site. Um, the financial limitations of the clubs was probably the most stark. So clubs not in a position to pay for strength and conditioning coaches to work with the players, not in a position to have qualified, experienced medical staff at every training session, not in a position to have qualified medical staff traveling with the team to away matches, 
um, needing to share medical staff with the home team. And so at the highest level of the game, um, that wouldn't be an acceptable situation for players who are really trying to to potentially be international players representing the country. And then there would have been a sense from several of the participants that there was some gender inequity, particularly uh, in clubs where there was male team as well. And sometimes the medical staff were responsible for both male and female teams. And there was a sense that the men's teams would have taken priority. I think this is a big challenge for the clubs who have huge financial um, limitations. Mm. They're trying to rent facilities. They don't own their own training grounds. They're trying to, if they have to pay for gym access, they have to, you know, outlay substantial amount of cash. And then they're looking at paying for qualified strength and conditioning staff. A lot of the clubs were using students or didn't have qualified staff there. Um, And as I said, with regard to medical support, most commonly clubs would have had um, med- qualified medical staff at one of the training sessions during the week, but not all. Yeah. Um, again, these are all factors that need to be considered when we look at the injury incidence rates and the sort of severity of injuries. Okay. It, it's There's a couple of things there. I wanted, firstly, like the micro is, is wor- uh, worth pointing out in terms of individual clubs have to make existential decisions a lot of the time. So it, it's very hard to um, specifically blame a specific case. But on the macro or the the more broader picture a report by FIFA last year suggests that uh, clubs 12% and 10% of clubs in in leagues like the Women's Premier Division don't have access to a medical room or a gym Mm. and uh, 20% and 16% of clubs don't have access to physiotherapists or strength and conditioning coaches so like the, the, the bottom line is the infrastructure isn't there and when it is there then we have a gender equality issue playing in as well yeah so i mean fifa are now really pushing to make some changes in women's football and they're they've published three of these what are called benchmarking reports over the last three years where they're going in and looking at 30 of the top ranked women's leagues in the world and they're examining what the clubs within those leagues have so have in place so that's where the data you've just reported there has come from and so you know, the circumstances in the Irish League are not exclusive just to this country. Obviously, there are um, other countries who have similar uh, challenges because the resources have not been put into women's football um, over the last 30 years in the same way they have been in men's football. I mean, I think we have to be clear. In men's football in Ireland, there are huge issues at play as well. Yeah. So we are nowhere near where we need to be in that, that side of the game. So I think it will be um, unfair to suggest that the Men's League of Ireland clubs, if we compare what they have to their international competitors, they're still miles off with regard to owning their own training grounds, having access to well-equipped strength and conditioning facilities, having all the expertise in place. But if we look at the women's game, they're even further behind. So, you know, not having access to performance nutritionists, not having access to qualified strength and conditioning coaches, sports scientists, access to... um utilizing GPS data in a way where you have expertise on site on an ongoing basis to, you know, interpret the data and work with the coaches. Um, All of these things are, you know, important now if you're talking about trying to compete at the top level. And we have team a team that will qualify to try to participate in the Champions League on a yearly basis, league winners. And if you if they get drawn against a team from the Women's Super League in England, who have much more substantial resources and expertise in place or in Germany or in Spain, you're talking about a significant mismatch. Yeah. And unfortunately, then they are vulnerable to, you know, 
injury in matches where they're up against players who are far more conditioned and have access to much more support to prepare for that type of game. Okay, yeah. Uh, just very briefly before I ask my final question, Dan, it sounds like as well, both uh, through um, tactical and physical development of how the game is played, that's kind of overtaking the support infrastructure for strength and conditioning in the women's game. Is that something that you, you've observed? Yeah, so this data, again, has been published um you know, over the last, say, seven, eight years, looking at um, running output at the top level of the game. So in particular, there have been analysis done of the Women's World Cups, the 2015 World Cup, 2019 World Cup, 2023 World Cup, looking at sprint distances within matches, looking at total distances covered, total distance at sprinting uh, velocities, so sprinting speeds, and looking at accelerations, decelerations, and there have been significant increases in all of those metrics over the last three World Cup cycles. And what's happening now is players are, if they're exposed to playing against opponents who are playing at a much higher level physically, then unless you're getting access to the types of strength and conditioning input that's required to develop those attributes from a young enough age, then really you're potentially at risk of getting injured. Now, there have been analyses done of the mechanisms of these anterior cruciate ligament injuries through video analyses in the women's professional game that have been published in the last year or two. And they're looking at over 80% of these injuries were incurred where players were trying to go out to press against an opponent, so defensive action, sprinting out and trying to slow down suddenly or landing after kicking a ball. That going out to try to defend against someone, if you're sprinting out... You've got to have the strength and power to actually sprint at that speed, but also slow down. Being able to decelerate from very fast speeds requires a huge amount of strength and power. And they're they're some of the things, if you're talking about risk of injury, if you can't slow yourself down when you're going out to press people very quickly, then we, we can see from some of those, some of that data that that is the mechanism of a lot of these anterior cruciate ligament injuries in a non-contact way. Yeah, yeah, no, and that makes sense as you explain it, Dan. Uh, you've been great with your time. Um, look, I don't know if you have anything personally, having done your work finally, that you feel should be the first priority in, in addressing this issue. Where do you think the best traction can be made over the short term? Look, I think Irish football needs a big bang moment with regard to investments. I think in women's football and men's football, this is why I know the FAI have, have their facilities vision and they've, they're urging the government to invest a lot of, more in football. But I think it's essential now if we're realistic about, you know, following on from the success of the women's national team qualifying for the World Cup for the first time. I think it would be naive to suggest that that will continue um, inevitably without massive investment. And what I mean by investment is, you know, investment in the type of expertise that players need in order to have the supports in place to develop and be able to compete against international um, countries or clubs. And that means that you need good quality training facilities, full-size pitches, gyms that are well-equipped with the type of uh, equipment that is required to develop the strength, power and balance that players need to play at the top level. And then having the qualified practitioners in place, strength and conditioning coaches, medical staff, performance nutritionists to support their development. And of course, that all needs to be aligned from the women's game with their education as well. So collaborations with universities, having scholarships in place where there are support systems and this is a symbiotic relationship between the clubs and the universities that would be critical as well. So there's a lot to be done, but I think it needs to be done quickly as opposed to, you know, let's hope in 20 years' time we can put things in place because we haven't seen the responses 
in men's football to qualify from World Cups historically with regard to investment in the types of facilities that mm. are required. And I think we are now in a, in a crisis situation in the game. Does Ireland need a big bang moment? Let's look at the League of Ireland and the Women's Premier Division specifically next. Athlone Towns Athletics and Rehab Therapist joins us uh, to continue this deep dive. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood. Now, just before the break, we were hearing from Dr. Dan Horn, who's been doing great work in terms of research and understanding the issue around injuries in elite women's sport, not just understanding them, but having a look at what's getting in the way of the prevention initiatives uh, that obviously the knowledge is there, but maybe being able to deliver it as being a big issue and a big question in League of Ireland women's football. I'm very glad to say uh, that uh, David Harrington, who's an athletics and rehab therapist with Athlone Town, they are the uh, FAI Cup champions of last year and are heading into new season, has joined us on Health and Fitness to speak to maybe some of the uh, lived experiences in this field. David, thanks for joining us on Health and Fitness this evening. Evening, Dave. How are you? How's things? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, let's jump straight into it then. As I prefaced there, you know, it's established the quantitative data is there that women experience more injuries in the elite game uh, than men in the equivalent league. Dr. Dan Horn was talking about that there's issues through young people developing, that there's issues in terms of anatomical, uh, anatomically how uh, women and men differ, uh, but specifically there's issues in strength and conditioning being delivered to the women's game because it's quite uneven across the league. Uh, you're in that field, in that league, so speak to me about your own personal experience. Um, how do you find working in that sphere first and foremost in the women's Premier Division? Yeah, yeah. Look, there's there's a there's definitely a challenge there in in making sure I suppose all players are available and fit and fully fit. Um, you know, it's a busy schedule. We're coming to a, a preseason stage at the moment. This this stage of the year, so it's kind of all go at the moment. Um, yeah, like there's a couple of tricky situations there. You know, um, in having the availability of S and C coaches, which we're fortunate to have. Um, as far as I know, most clubs do have them. Um, there's a lot of sports scientists kind of floating around and stuff like that at the moment. But um, it's just trying to get them in the door and put their kind of stamp on things um, with regards injury prevention and kind of liaison with, with myself in doing the best we can to make sure each player is right. But uh, yeah, no, like so far in my involvement in, in working at Lone over the last kind of four years, um, We've been fortunate enough not to have, you know, too many injuries. Like we always kind of review the year, look back on how many, I suppose, long-term injuries we had versus short-term and go through discussions then on how we can minimise the chances of those happening coming into the new season. So we're already working on that at the moment as we as we go into this season. So by the sounds of it, the club you're at is relatively well provisioned in this regard the work that Dr. Dan Horn did was was based on a few years ago. Do you think the league has moved on, generally speaking, uh, in a positive regard uh, around strength and conditioning uh, in every club or generally? I think they have, yeah. I definitely think League of Ireland is improved a hell. Like if we compare it to, if we compare my experience, say, with Athlone, when I first came into the club, we didn't have a gym. 
Um, and we've gotten one in the last, I think it's three years there now. If not, it's definitely two, okay. two seasons, possibly three years. Um, like that wasn't there when I first came in. So you were kind of, you were limited on what you could do. And that was, that was across the board on, you know, underage to the girls, to the men's. Um, it was across the entire board. So it was, it was definitely a lot more difficult when you didn't have those, you know, the options of being able to, to load up with with either a bar on your back or dumbbells and just get more strength through whatever it was you were trying to improve. But any club I've gone to uh, away games, you know, we've always seen a gym. Um, Facility-wise, it has been good. Um, I'd imagine most of them have... S&C coaches, or they always have a physio. There's never been a game really where I've gone to where there hasn't been one involved or I've been told that I need to have a look at, you know, away players. It, it doesn't really work that way. There's always been, um, I suppose, physios there. Whether there's, there's S&C there, I'm not too sure. I don't know the background on, on other teams with S&C. But um, no, I, I definitely feel it's it's improved. Can it improve again? Yeah, of course it can. Everything can always improve. Um, but... It's it's come on a hell of a lot from where it was, definitely. Yeah, and it's important to underline that uh, not necessarily a gender equality issue. Facilities is a big issue in the League of Ireland in in both the men and the women's games. Um, so maybe there's better work being done as time goes on and we can hope for improvements in that regard as uh, the years go by. But what we can't do is unpack or change what happened while... Uh, these women were developing through their adolescence. How big a factor do you think uh, the strength and conditioning that hasn't been done with women from an early age is having an effect on the injury numbers in the elite game today? Yeah, I think that's that's a big one. Um, and again, you'll get, I suppose, underage who are, again, if I compare off the underage system with Athlone, you know, are they... Are a lot of those underages playing uh, GA football? Are they playing with their school soccer with their school? Um, are they playing? You know, they could be playing other sports as well. So, that, like, if we looked at their weekly schedule, I'm sure it is fairly hectic and quite busy. So, do they do S and C work on top of that? Uh, we have them prescribed in at loan, where they do. You know, they have their plans and stuff like that. So that and the the coaches kind of have them on their own um, work to develop areas to, to I suppose minimize the chances of injuries but yeah definitely definitely one thing that's very hard to manage and that probably the knowledge may not have been there a couple of years ago to you know look at these areas and make sure that look you know if you've had a hamstring injury rather than just at a young age you know rather than what what most people would have done or even maybe to this day still do where they just kind of give it a week or two's rest um, or even worse again, try and actually play a little bit on it and not get through, but just give it a week or two's rest, not actually try and strengthen it. And then they just go back. Yes, some of them will get away with it because they have, I suppose, youth on their side and they're still developing, but some of them don't. And then they just get repeated injuries. And then that can lead into, I suppose, as they get older, as the intensity kind of gets ramped up a little bit uh, with trainings, it can become kind of more of a, a chronic kind of problem. So, Definitely, yeah, at a younger age. It's a tricky one, but uh, again, I feel like it's it's something that's been kind of uh, marked. It's been kind of spotted. A lot of the coaching staff that I work with in particular uh, from that underage up are, you know, they're well aware of it and they, they try and make sure that things are all on the straight and narrow for these players as they go through their kind of development, the early doors. 
yeah, hopefully we're baking into the future better practice in that regard and um, participants will have uh, stronger in, uh, resistance to injuries as time goes on, especially the more we deliver that uh, better knowledge. Uh, David, then kind of on a final point in 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 your line of work, in the day-to-day that you do in and around soccer at the top level of the game, uh, what would you like to see on a general basis in 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 the League of Ireland in this country uh, being provided for or invested in to improve the situation regarding women's injury at this level of the game? Um, good question, Dave. Uh, yeah, I know it's a tricky one. Like, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if you had a wish list, if you if you were found yourself for absolutely no reason whatsoever at the top of the game and you you had ten minutes to enact something, uh, is there anything? on a day-to-day basis you think we really need to get this going not just at at, at loan but everywhere uh, definitely I would say if I had a wish list I'd be going bigger and bigger and better with regards gym equipment and size um, across the board facilities like, again, are really the, important then yeah yeah it's huge it's huge and like you know you have a panel of whatever 25 plus or whatever whatever amounts on say one team Um you know, you squeeze them all into a gym there and it's it, like, you'll get the job done. It's great. But like, of course, if you hadn't, if most places had more space and that's from across the board, it's not just with the club that I'm involved with, but yeah. across the board, um, that would be, that of course would be the, the wish list. But uh, look, we make, we make do with what we have. And, um, but other than that, no, look, I, I think it's going on the right path, Dave. I think it's, I think it's something that like, as I said to you, we've kind of, we go through our injury profiles, uh, towards the the throughout the whole season, but particularly at the end, and we look at it for the start of the season and we just put a plan in place for, you know, let's say player X had a couple of ankle injuries throughout the season. She'll do her generic injury prevention prehab work before the, the training starts, along with then her specific stuff to try and make sure that that ankle injury doesn't keep reoccurring. Um, so no, they all have kind of plans as like that the knowledge I think is there across the board throughout the whole League of Ireland with regards uh, staff and stuff and looking after their players but yeah I think definitely facilities wise is always the one like that's always something that I think every club would, would love to improve on yeah yeah and uh, that's uh, an emphatic uh, point to, to leave this particular debate on just as we finish up then David heading into a new season as the FAI Cup champions season previous runner up in both the Cup and the League uh, there must be a fair bit of excitement heading into this season uh, full new season under Kieran Kilduff I'd say there's um, positivity and excitement about what could be uh, coming down the tracks Big time yeah yeah really looking forward to it it's another another big year from, from last year I think we're uh, we're not long over last year's um, last year's winning celebrations. It was a great, a really good year for the club, for the town, for the girls, for all the staff. It was it was unbelievable, um, and hopefully we can go on the same and even better again this year. But no, everybody's really really looking forward to the season and and getting going again. Thanks to uh, Dave Harrington there. Big thanks as well to Dr. Dan Horn and to Martina Martin and Donna McCardo for our cycling piece earlier on. Uh, that's just about it for this week's show. On next week's show, we actually have plenty to look forward to. I've been working on it already. I know uh, Dr. Dan Cooper returns to health and fitness. We'll be talking about the strength training research study for leash women that's taking place in the Amore County. And we're going to have a really fascinating conversation uh, with a Westmead psychiatrist on how the internet is shaping the next 
next generation and their mental health. Uh, That is just about it uh, on the show for this week. Joe Cooney is eagerly waiting with Country Roads next and that is uh, after the news at 8 o'clock. I'll be back with you uh, some stage at the start of next week, Tuesday I believe, I'm taking the Monday off. Have yourself a very good weekend and I'll talk to you soon.